found some wood and started a fire and danced even though there wasn't any music. I went to meetings, I wrote the letters, and pretty soon I wasn't alone. We get out of the truck, we hiked through this field with our surfboards. I'm like, there's no way there's going to be waves here. At Patagonia, we are climbers and skiers. We are surfers and anglers. We're activists and dreamers. Stories of the fabric of our shared culture, and we're proud to sponsor the Dirtbag Diaries. Visit us at Patagonia.com. Okay, Ryan Nickham, I have your passports here. All right. Two of them, both of them. We're going to play a little word association game here. All right. Um, Ryan, I'm going to go ahead and say a name of country, and I want you to come up with the memory that stands out in okay. the fewest possible words. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. I'm going to randomly look through this thing, and Armenia. Like Georgia, but with Lebanese restaurants and more vodka. Mexico. Surfing uh, on Baja while my friend's 18-year-old Swedish exchange student cousin hangs out on the beach. Let's make this a little quicker, okay? All right. Jordan. Man selling uh, um, sex toy artifacts. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like these like weird, like, they come up to you in the parking lot, like, hey, you want to buy this uh, ceramic penis? You're like, what is that, man? Yeah, it's an artifact. <laughs> like, no. But it's also only 20 <laughs> okay, bucks for camera. about Jordan. <laughs> all right, all right, sorry. Egypt. Uh, camel roadkill. Poland. Uh, forest whores. Women, they're like prostitutes that work on logging roads. We were driving by, and we're like, what are all these women doing in miniskirts? Ladies for hire working in logging roads. Okay. You don't see that in the National Romania. Forest. Romania. Uh, stray dogs. Thailand. Um, beautiful beaches. Singapore. Uh, very clean toilets. Very clean. Why do you have two passports anyway? Peace Corps gives you one. Oh my god. Yeah, that picture's yeah, kind of rough. That's like Dr. Evil right there. Yeah. You know, they that will get you put in the second line at security when you walk through the airport <laughs> with that one. It's like if Osama bin Laden and the Unabomber had a baby and it went bald. That's what that looks like right there. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It makes plane travel kind of hard. If stories are the currency of travel, Ryan Nickham is a very, very wealthy man. It's funny. I've known Ryan for years, and he, maybe more so than anyone I've ever met, is in love with the Northwest. He's a product of the Northwest. This is the place he was born, raised, came of age. He's going to live here. It's his home. Yet, he has always been blessed, slash, afflicted by something that could be best described as restlessness. Yeah, somebody like dropped out of college six times. Um, yeah, I have a hard time kind of sitting still. And uh, yeah, I mean, I love it here. This is home. It's great. But there's a totally different feeling when you're when you're just traveling and you're not you know, everything's new. All the sights are new. All the smells are new. The food's different. The people are different. Uh, um, you just, you know, you're just, your senses are really opened up. Yeah, I think I've been home for five months now. And the itch is starting, but I think I got three or four more months before kind of banging my head against the wall. Wanderlust. It's like a song that will not leave our ears. Even the root of the word, lust, reflects a burning, unsatiated desire for something fleeting. Why is one person consumed by a desire to travel, haunted by the inability to sit still, while others are perfectly content in a warm home in the shadow of their favorite mountain? What makes a traveler's feet restless? Is it nature or nurture? Today, writer Ryan Nickham presents Bedtime Stories for Wanderers. I'm Fitzko Hall. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
was 4 a.m. in my small village when I awoke. Outside, a crowd of drunken men sang beneath my window, pausing only for more homemade vodka. The cow that lived downstairs moved along with them as a swarm of mosquitoes drained blood from me. The roosters prematurely announced the sunrise, and somewhere in the distance, a dog died. Welcome to the Republic of Georgia. It wasn't the racket outside that woke me from my dream about filing papers in a sterile office building back home in Seattle. It was my parasite-ridden digestive system. My alarm clock that morning was a warm blast of diarrhea that shot through my shorts, soaked the sheets, and pulled me violently into the day. Amidst the stench of partially digested cabbage soup, I realized I would be eating the same thing for breakfast. I was now officially a Peace Corps volunteer. This was only the beginning. As I looked out my window into the swirling dust on my dung-covered street, I sought someone to blame for my miserable predicament. And so, like so many people in therapist offices across our great land, I blamed my father. As small children, my brother and I would turn to prunes in the bathtub as my dad told us stories. As the water went cold, we'd rub our arms with our hands to repress our shivers. Tell us about the time you got arrested for climbing the Golden Gate Bridge, we'd insist. Tell us about hopping trains. It was, it was a thrill to be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a ship. Stopped by these border guards and a big Russian I like the character of the Afghan people. Yeah, I was offered a job uh, with a go out and shoot dingoes. Well, even though the life was cheap, your life wasn't any more cheaper than theirs. Fortunately, I was able to get off the ship and, and not have them think that I was a jump ship, which I actually had. It's a big world out there. I, I would probably stress that I think we are, as a people, one world. Some dads read their children Goldilocks and Three Bears. Mine told of wandering through Guatemalan markets and sleeping on the cheap behind the washing machines and El Paso laundromats. Sometimes, it's the one about hitchhiking across Afghanistan, where he stopped to watch a game of buzkashi, a sport like polo, but played with a headless goat's carcass. Other times, the tale of jumping ship in Guam before island hopping across the Philippines. His stories were always told matter-of-fact, as if it was totally common to find yourself watching a bar brawl in a small rubber-tapping town deep in the Amazon. Sleeping behind dumpsters in the capital of El Salvador was no different to him than downgrading from the Hilton to the Days Inn. For him, these stories were mere souvenirs from travels. But for me, they represented an ideal, a blueprint, something to emulate. As a small child, I didn't want to be a fireman or a soldier. I wanted to be my father. Or a professional football player. It's killing us, we never speak. There's a radio in the corner. Um, I, I went into a Mexican jail once and <laughs> said, can I uh, have a night's sleep here? And they said, well, okay. Um, I just needed a place to sleep, and that was right there. And I was just trying to save money, and, and it worked fine. My dad rarely noted things like danger or being lost. He didn't brag about his adventures or exaggerate the details. He was far more awed with the places he'd seen and the people he'd met than with any of the things he'd done. And he just assumed his travel methods were normal. Here's my mom. The danger's either been ahead of him or behind him. But uh, it's just... Uh, it's kind of like oil and, and, and water. It just, it just doesn't, doesn't mix. He, does, he just doesn't sweat the small stuff. It, it's not a, it, 
<laughs> this doesn't measure on the Richter scale. By tuning out the dangers, the what-ifs, and the apprehensions that colors barebones travel, my father opened himself to the world. We can both Growing up on a small island reached only by bridge and ferry, the world seemed a long way off, especially with the evening news coming to you via small black-and-white TV with few channels. My father's tales of distant lands brought the greater world to me the way TV couldn't. If he told about riding across the desert in a tractor-trailer with Iraqi soldiers, it was sparked by news of the Iraq and Iran war. When these impromptu history and geography lessons would occur, I would head to the bookshelf for his atlas, a hulking and tattered book it took all of my strength to carry. My dad's thick fingers would run along distant borders, over the ridges of the mountains, and across rivers I'd never heard of. He'd explain how he arrived in Tehran or Baghdad, and why the borders were drawn a certain way. These were more than mere maps. They were windows into the world beyond my reach. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. As the world celebrated the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was busy with a 7th grade presentation on my German ancestors for a school-wide cultural fair. I complained to my dad that no one would be interested in some German barrel makers in Pennsylvania. I needed something to jazz it up. And my dad just happened to have a piece of the Berlin Wall laying around in the backyard. Actually, I was a diversion. I went down... Uh, 20 feet away or 30 feet away, and I kind of jumped up and down to try to look over the wall. Because we weren't worried about the East Berliners, but the West Berlin police were one around to make sure it was safe. So we thought we had to deal with them. Anyway, they, they were kind of looking at me. I used to rob, and this other guy went up to it and grabbed it and kind of put it between your hips and slowly walked over to the car and uh, put it in the back of the car, and then we later put it in the front. But it's, it may not be a... Uh, a moon rock uh, type uh, <laughs> uh, precious thing anymore with the whole wall got taken down. So, but uh, it, we got a kick out of it. It was kind of fun. Hey, hey, you. Crowds of students and parents gathered around my presentation. No thanks to Johann Nickel Nickum, the German barrel maker. The only Nickum ancestor people were interested in was my dad. My dad doesn't fit the profile of a guy who bummed rides off the future Mujahideen in Afghanistan or tried to hitch a boat ride to Indonesia with Filipino smugglers. My dad is bald, five foot seven, wears his extra weight proudly over his belt, and accessorizes with bifocals and a pair of hearing aids. But behind his pleated slacks remain the steel cojones of a man who once climbed the Brooklyn Bridge on a dare and were it not for the threat of jail time, probably would again. When I was 23... My dad started planning a trip through Eastern Europe, Russia, and much of the Middle East. He invited my brother and I to join him, and I still can't believe I briefly toyed with the idea of staying behind. In my mind, I thought I would have to look out for my father. I was physically fit and assumed I was street smart beyond my years. Plus, my dad's adventures of late had been confined to watching Rick Steves on PBS while eating a second bowl of ice cream. It turned out I was completely wrong. For five weeks, the constant dangers and absurdities of traveling in these regions made me tense and left me exhausted with worry. My brother and I struggled to keep up with my dad's pace. While I fixated on the pickpockets eyeing us, scratched at the bedbugs, and stressed about the prostitute who called our room in the middle of the night, he marveled at the scenery. 
One night, on a train from Russia as we crossed into Ukraine, we were held up by border guards. With no common language, the border guards ushered me into a private room, sat me down, and took away my passport. We look like targets. We don't, we don't look like, we're not that imposing. We don't look like the American judo team traveling through Ukraine. We're, you know, Nick and Ryan Nickum. The border guard explained it would cost me $50 to get it back. I was starting to sweat, but I simply shook my head and reached for my passport, which he pulled away. We appeared to be at an impasse, and then suddenly there's a huge commotion a few rooms down, and my father is going ballistic. He's just screaming at the top of his lungs, Bring back my... And then words you probably can't say on your podcast. Um, but he's just going crazy, just screaming, yelling. Um, you know, a voice that I haven't heard him yell like that since, you know, I was in high school and I was in trouble. His cursing out of the entire border patrol woke everyone on board. Hearing the commotion, the guard across from me suddenly looked nervous and took me back to our berth. Inside, my father was yelling for them to bring back his son. I'm like, Dad, Dad, calm down, you know? And he's like, sees me, recognizes him back in the car. And he's like, get your stuff, you know, pack your stuff. We're getting off this train. I'm like, Dad, we're not getting off this train. It's, you know, the middle of the night. It's crazy. And he's like, he's like, just pretend like we're not getting off. Just pretend like you are. Stuff your bag, you know. Start yelling. Like, okay. So I started throwing my stuff in my bag, you know, cursing these, you know, border guards out. Finally, it was agreed we would pay $3 for health insurance, and they left us alone. And while my heart pounded in the heat of the train car, my dad began snoring. The memories of those five weeks are more vivid than any previous five weeks of my life. My dad and I shared beers in basement bars in Prague, argued with cabbies in Moscow, rode through sunflower fields in Romania, swam in the Dead Sea, got stuck in a traffic jam in the West Bank, drove the coastal roads in western Turkey, and passed withered camel carcasses in the Sinai Desert. By the end of the trip, like some dormant recessive gene, the travel bug awoke in me. My quiet little Seattle life was missing something very big. Within six months of my return, I had dropped out of college and was hitchhiking south. I'm not exactly sure my dad was pleased about that, but I'm sure he could relate. In the years that followed, I ate manta ray tacos on Mexican beaches, strolled the dung-covered streets beside sacred cows in India, and walked past the rubble of the Bali bombings. I hitchhiked around the West Coast, visited tree sits, tended bar in a small Arizona mining town, and rode a boat through British Columbia waters besides barking seals. By the age of 30, my resume had a lot more gaps than my passport. I'd chosen temporary jobs over a career. I'd compiled numerous stories to tell, but my efforts at becoming a writer had fallen short. Do not expect literary stardom with a non-fiction humor book titled This Day in Bald History. As time passed, reality had given my idealism a beating. The images of places I'd traveled through being racked by tsunamis, bombings, and poverty left me feeling outraged but powerless. I was still restless and longing to travel, but I didn't want to leapfrog the planet from hostel to hostel, listening to the tiresome banter of backpackers. I was ready for a life-changing experience. I wanted to commit a chunk of my life to doing something that would help the lives of others, and I wanted it to be an adventure. I joined the Peace Corps. Many of my friends were shocked. I guess to them, my cynical nature seemed to disqualify me from being someone who would sing Kumbaya after a non-competitive hacky sack tournament and later share a bowl of steamed lentils with the villagers before returning to my hut to read the collective works of Howard Zinn. I guess some doubted the depth of my liberal idealism. When I received my country assignment of the Republic of Georgia, 
I looked around my apartment and considered my options. Next to the Peace Corps letter was a recent rejection letter for my book. Smoke trickled out a hole in the wood stove, my sole source of heat. Since the plumbing was under repair again, a Gatorade bottle, temporarily serving as my urinal, rested uneasily by the door. Perhaps not surprisingly, I had no girlfriend to break the news to. The first person I called was my dad. One of the first things he asked me was when he could visit. As I figured out what to pack, my dad began planning his own trip. We read up on the region's history and politics, looked over maps, and swapped books back and forth. My dad was the last one to see me off at the airport. The full weight of the two years to come hit me as I hugged him goodbye and walked to the gate. For my two years in Georgia, I worked as an education volunteer, teaching English in a village school. The rest of my time was spent drinking wine with the locals, declining the opportunities to drink wine with the locals, and hiding from the locals when they tried to make me drink wine. Those two years supplied me with a lifetime of frustrations. I grew tired of seeing organized dogfights, drunk men staggering about, and attending funerals for people killed in alcohol-related accidents. Winters without heat left my toes numb for months. My health suffered. At times, I felt like nobody at my school was putting forth any effort. I grew homesick and thought of quitting. But for all the disappointments and aggravations, it was also the greatest experience of my life. Georgia was rarely boring. I learned to make wine, watched the sunset into the Black Sea, fell asleep to the howls of jackals, killed a chicken with an axe, drank horns full of wine in the graveyard to honor the dead, and missed the invading Russian army by two weeks. I came to understand the culture and to see the world through the eyes of others. Elderly women danced on tables at parties, priests did vodka shots with you, men washed their cars in the river while wearing only their tidy whities People named their cows after Condoleezza Rice. Cab drivers threatened to crash the taxi if you wouldn't take off your seatbelt. Georgia was nuts. It was ridiculous, and I wanted to share it with everyone. Georgian wine is an inseparable part of Georgian culture. The oldest tradition of winemaking. Three months before leaving Georgia, my mom, dad, and my brother Stuart came to visit. Together we toured ancient churches, watched dolphins splash in the Black Sea, and wandered the narrow streets of Tbilisi. I brought them to my village to meet the community that had protected and supported me for two years. People in my village planned large parties in my family's honor. These parties, called supras, are an integral part of the Georgian culture. During the supra, the table sags under the weight of food and drink and the men consume vast quantities of wine while making grandiose toasts to everything imaginable. Toasting to their harvest, to their family, to their forefathers, and singing the sweet... A supra can be held for weddings, funerals, birthdays, and holidays, but it can occur at almost any time and for any reason. For instance, when a neighbor helps you with some yard work, supra. Or if you deliver a doghouse to a relative, supra. Or if you prune a tree, or repair the rearview mirror on your Soviet wreck of a car, Supra. If you find some old change in an old pair of pants, hey, Supra. I've been training with the locals for over a year, enduring their long banquets and destroying my long-term liver health by drinking my glass of wine to the bottom with each toast. 
and sometimes those glasses proved too small for what tradition dictated, so we drank instead from large bowls, bells, oversized mugs, and the hollowed-out horns of wild sheep. Peace Corps placed me in the home of a great man. Omari Gogsadze is the most able drinker I've ever met, and his name is famed throughout the region. Omari once consumed 15 liters of wine in a drinking contest. His competitor in that event died. Now my family is not a family of drinkers, and I feared for their health and safety in the face of the onslaught of Georgian hospitality and wine glasses that never stay empty for long. At the first few Supras, the drinking wasn't particularly heavy by Georgian standards, but 10 plus glasses of wine and a few additional horns apiece is still heavy by American ones. But my dad and my brother kept up with the drinking. I watched them closely, urged restraint, and sought to slow the pace of the constant toasting by our host. However, as soon as we seemed to be out of the woods, my dad would say to me, Could you ask him for another horn? I'd like to make a toast. For a man who drinks no more than two glasses of wine at a sitting, I couldn't figure out where his high level of tolerance came from. Maybe I've drunk more wine over the years, or maybe I've uh, got something from my Rio days of rum, but, uh, or maybe I, uh, I'm so old that I've... Uh, put enough in my system that I can uh, withstand a little more. I don't know. We do have a wine, uh, you know, three or four nights a week, uh, not in any excess amount, but maybe I'm hardened a little bit. But the real test didn't come until my host father Omari's 60th birthday super. It's coming around, so you better get used to it. If you want tight, you could shake loose to it. Throw it on the table. A large banquet hall was rented, over 50 men gathered, and together we toasted and drank, toasted and drank, and toasted and drank some more. We were called upon by our hosts to raise additional glasses for the friendship between our countries, for peace in God, for women, for grandparents, for siblings, for cousins, for cousins' cousins, for classmates, for those working abroad, and for us, Hemi, Mago, Rebel, America, After six hours of continuous drinking and toasting, the local men began falling asleep in their chairs. While fending off yet another horn of wine, my brother and I didn't notice my dad down at the other end of the table, drinking additional toast with my neighbors. They were very friendly, and maybe they're a little friendlier when they had a little bit too much to drink. I figured if I was feeling drunk, he was probably feeling much worse. When we got home that night, the last thing we wanted was more wine. But since there were guests, there was yet another super in the front yard. I did my best to translate for our completely hammered Toastmaster. Although, I was so drunk, some of the translation was in Spanish, a language I don't speak. Stuart and I staggered away from the table, doing our best to keep vertical. Meanwhile, my dad casually bid goodnight to his lightweight sons, and in a straight line, walked upstairs to read his book, as if he was a little engine that could have kept on drinking forever. I'm going home, I'm smoking my last cigarette. Muffler shop shouting that she's in the city. The, north the next morning, we found my dad reading his book at the super table, completely ready for whatever would come next. Chidobis Gamajos. Chidobis Gamajos. In Georgia, that means a vodka breakfast. Oh. Uh, there's nothing like vodka in the morning for breakfast. Oh. Your psyches and streets are a I'd like to think that I inspired you um, because I was inspired by others and it has such a big part of my life.
Either through their presence or their absence, sons are shaped by their fathers. Were it not for mine, I don't know if I would have been as inspired to travel, much less have gone to Georgia for two years. I've always said, even before you did that, that I was jealous of those who spent enough time in a particular place and got to really know and understand it. Because in my travels, I never could do it that extent. Because mm-hmm. I was kind of moving from place to place. And that has its advantages when you're trying to get around the world. You need to get home before your money runs out. But I, I, I'm jealous of you and what you did as well as admire what you did for that reason. But I just, I really, I think that's great. And, I, and I, it's not something I could ever do and have done. And I, Were it not for Georgia, I never would have met Paige, a fellow Peace Corps volunteer I will marry in June. And I never would have adopted a Georgian straight mutt named Maka, who, as I write this, is snoring beside me, farting in her sleep. Had I spent my bath time playing with my rubber ducky, instead of listening to tales of travel and adventure, I doubt I would be as content in my life, although perhaps the room would smell better. I've been home for five months now, and at first I felt enormous relief to be back amongst the familiar comforts of American life, to work nine to five, have a pizza delivered, and watch Sports Center highlights. But as the weeks pass, that old itch has started coming back. That desire to throw a pack on your back, collect stamps in your passport, and stumble off to parts unknown. My fiancé and I have started tacking up maps on our walls. The wedding isn't until June. There's still time to plan and save for a honeymoon. Maybe Peru, perhaps Borneo, the Philippines... The next trip, I'm not sure, um, but there are endless places to go. And as for my dad, he's scheming up more trips and adventures. But as they approach senior citizen status, I wonder if my dad's style of travel will change. So after, after uh, climbing the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, hitchhiking across Afghanistan, honeymoon safari in the East Africa, you're going to take up RVing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it won't be RVing the way you think of that. <laughs> I would say that the one that I'm looking at is an XV, which is an expedition vehicle. So you can go off into the hinterlands and stay there for a week or two. And I don't want to go to an RV park. I have no desire to spend my time in an RV park. Yelling the holler of the ghost I have squandered. And someday soon, when I have children, what will I tell them while they splash in the bathtub? Will they want to hear about me dodging ricochets? while firing automatic weapons during a shooting contest with the Georgian police? Probably not. I bet they'll prefer hearing their granddad tell of crocodile hunting on the Amazon River as he drives them off into the Alaskan bush to look at polar bears in his expedition vehicle. Yeah, life's a steady hustle, man. But you gotta be smart. You always gotta stay on top of your game to make sure the next person you don't know that you already know what they trying to get. Ryan Nickham lives and works in Seattle. Remember his nonfiction comedy book on bald history? Well, if you're interested in more of Nickham's writing, his blog, This Day in Bald History, is set to launch this January. Check it out at www.thisdayinbaldhistory.com. Music Today by Hauschka, Frightened Rabbit, Rodriguez, The Coast, Frontier Ruckus, and The Tones. You can find information about the artists and stream the cuts at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Got a story idea? Send it in, and you too could end up just like Nickum, earning the big bucks, living in five-star hotels, and recording at the -the state-of-the-art Dirtbag West studio. Oh, yeah, man. It's just like I'm sure how it is in Hollywood. Except for I'm in a dank closet like a 
some sort of like Iraqi torture victim, but like my torturer is gonna use ski gear and like out of style coats. Oh shit. Are these Becca's? Don't tell her I said that. I'm kidding, these are nice coats. Email us at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. As always, funding for the diaries is provided by the good people at Patagonia. Check them out online at patagonia.com. Additional editing today by Rebecca Cahal. I'm Fitz Cahal, and that was Ryan Nickham. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Nigga, you can't be for real. Get-